Hello, and welcome to Unfinishing, the podcast all about things that were never completed or never made public. My name's Em Anderson, and my guest this week is Matt Busher. Matt is a designer and art director who works in the world of branding and editorial design. His design practice is called 2187. His recent commissions include an identity for a new artist and maker-led online store called Inland, an e-commerce store for an Australian fashion brand called Song for the Mute, and a wayfinding system for an electric vehicle startup called Arrival. Matt's here today to tell me about the solar-powered web server that he started building in the summer of 2020, and now it's in a box in pieces. We talk about how lots of problems have simple, low-tech solutions, including how to grow tropical fruit in colder temperatures, about websites that change colour when they're running out of battery, about people not talking on buses anymore, and also about Matt's collaboration with one of my previous guests on this podcast, Rishi Dastidar. The link to my interview with Rishi is in the show notes if you're interested. And just before we get to my conversation with Matt, I wanted to let you know that I'm always on the lookout for new guests. So if you have a project that you haven't finished or haven't made public, please get in touch with me via email at unfinishing.pod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at TrueBaggleRag, and the details of both of those addresses are in the show notes. You've described your unfinished project as being a solar-powered web server that you started building in summer 2020. Now, assuming that I know nothing about web servers or, in fact, solar-powered technology, could you explain the aims of the project and uh, either how it worked or, or how it was designed to work? Yeah, so I guess the starting point came when I was... I'd, I'd just gone back to freelancing from having worked full-time at an agency and I was thinking about how to design a, a new website to showcase the work I'd been doing over the last few years, but in a slightly more interesting way. I think one of the things that I'd noticed over the last few years is that as internet speeds have increased, so is the amount of content that we consume. So a lot of portfolio websites these days, and I think a lot of websites in general have masses of video content. Mm. They're really bloated. And I noticed that when I was going on other designer sites, my laptop was slowing down, the fans were kicking in. And you know, at some points it would actually just freeze and I'd have to sure. kill the machine. So it, it kind of almost started as the antithesis of that. Like, what is the bare minimum that I can create that mm-hmm. is the direct opposite to these really content-heavy websites? And thinking about rather than passively consuming content, is there something that you can do where we're more, you're more of an active participant? So is there some way of interacting with the content in a way that directly affects the website? And I just went on this weird little rabbit hole of the internet of like researching little things and then came across this really fascinating article in low tech magazine who have set up their own solar powered server on the side of the magazine editors balcony in barcelona okay so he has this little microcomputer that's probably no bigger than a credit card it connects to a solar panel that sits on his windowsill on his balcony Mm -hmm. and it's connected to a battery he's written a, a, a piece of software that controls the power output so when the battery starts running down on the on the website, uh, if you know if the weather's not been very good and it hasn't charged, or there's lots and lots of people visiting the site, then mm. it can shut the website down, 
um, and then reboot it once it's started up. It also reacts directly to the amount of light that's available. So the the background of the the page changes. So when it's fully charged, it's yellow, and then as it um, starts to decrease, it slowly starts changing blue. So you can sort of see the, the kind of physical effects of the the battery and the the sunlight on on the website. So that was th- that was kind of the premise of the idea. Could you tell me a little bit more about what Low Tech Magazine is? That's a really fascinating story about the editor with his solar panels on the on his balcony. Yeah, so they essentially it's the idea that for most problems there's a quite simple low technology solution. Mm-hmm. So not everything has to revolve around really complicated cutting edge technology like there is a much simpler approach. They publish very infrequently, but there's a really amazing article about how to grow tropical fruit in sub or sort of cold temperatures. And mm-hmm. it, it simply involves digging a, digging a pit in the ground and um, growing your fruit in the, in the ground at below ground level because you have the residual warmth of the earth, mm-hmm. which is you know incredibly simple, doesn't involve a greenhouse, doesn't involve mm-hmm. generators or electricity or any kind of heat. It's just protecting the the fruit or vegetables from the extremes of the you know the wind or the cold from outside and just using the residual warmth of the earth in the same way that some passive house architecture involves having uh, retaining walls built out of really dense uh, amounts of earth you know during the day the, the earth warms and then as it cools in the evening it, it releases the the heat from the earth into the house and it warms keeps the house at a sort of constant temperature so it's the same sort of approach we should probably just quickly explain what a passive house is for the benefit of people who might not know, including me. I'm a little bit hazy oh, on that. Oh, gosh. Now you're really testing my... <laughs> um, so a passive house, if I got it correctly, is essentially a house that is incredibly energy efficient and mm. reduces the ecological footprint. So it uses things like thermal efficiency. So you know, we might have double glazed glass. You're talking mm. like triple or maybe quadruple glazing so that he can't escape um everything is airtight there's no drafts it's lots of lots of innovations but they're usually quite simple it doesn't always Mm -hmm. necessarily involve technology a lot of british houses are very drafty they're not very well built (laughs) so you know having airtightness and there's like specific rules around um how much air can escape before a building Mm. can actually be past the passive house categorization so it's really fascinating i feel like in the next like 10 20 years we're probably going to see more and more of these uh principles being sort of instilled within kind of building design as we sort of try and struggle with you know rising energy costs and changing climate i was just thinking as you were talking that i could definitely do with a little bit of that in my house i live in a very drafty brick terraced style house yeah (laughs) so Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can see the appeal. Um, and you were talking there about finding low-tech solutions to most problems and how that's generally possible. Would you say that we are too reliant on the web and on high-tech technology, if I can put it like that? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know whether we're necessarily too reliant. I, I suppose it, it's it's almost become the default, as it were. Mm. If there's a problem that presents itself it can usually be solved through the power of 
a web app or a website yeah. or some kind of collective effort rather than necessarily doing something that's perhaps more immediate and more tangible mm. you know on on the ground you know maybe something that actually all it needs is like a a few people meeting for coffee at a local coffee shop sure. to, to yeah. chat about, but then it turns into someone designing an app to connect all your neighbours together. Whereas, yeah, you know, as a good example, we uh, we've been looking at getting some work done on our house. I just started writing notes on postcards to people and just stuck them through people's doors in the area <laughs> who'd had nice nice work done on their house. Yeah, which was a much quicker way than sort of trying to look on the internet for recommendations and posting on WhatsApp groups and Instagram and what have you. Um, it's also a really nice way to meet meet some of the neighbours mm. that we've never met before. Sounding like I'm pining for the days of no phones, <laughs> which is not the case. I regularly pine for that. <laughs> so. I don't know, it's, it is interesting though. I was having a conversation with my girlfriend a while ago about, so I found some of my old notebooks mm. from when I was at college and they're just scribbled with notes of like snippets of overheard conversations on buses um, and mm-hmm. trains. And no one talks on buses anymore, but everyone's just yeah. stuck on their phones. So you, you never yeah. hear these really amazing conversations that you used to, used to maybe get, especially riding night buses late at night. My grandma claimed that she once stayed on a bus for more stops than she needed to because she was busy listening to someone else's conversation in front of her that she was really interested in. That's amazing. I, I really hope that's true because <laughs> yeah. I could definitely, definitely see myself doing that. Okay, so I'm going to come back to your solar-powered web server now. Sorry, we've digressed. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's fine. That's what it's all about. Um, so I'm interested in what making designing that involved so day one you're going to make a solar powered web server what do you do yeah that's a very good question so luckily low-tech magazine a proponent of the sort of open source ethics Mm -hmm. or ideals so they actually released all of their source code and a sort of step-by-step guide to how to make your own so the sort of groundwork had been done by them that was really helpful as a starting point. I I decided to kind of ignore some of it and go off on a slight tangent by using um, a Raspberry Pi computer as as the basis of mine. So Raspberry Pi are these really amazing microcomputers. They're not much bigger than a kind of credit card, and they were designed in a way to make programming sort of accessible and understandable for children and young adults and just generally anyone who has an interest in programming because like most computers are completely encased these this is like a well it's essentially a circuit board with everything visible mm-hmm. so essentially you, you take a raspberry pi you then take it's another there's a module called a pi juice which is essentially a um it's like a little battery that you might get in a phone and it connects mm-hmm. to the to the raspberry pi you then need to connect it to a monitor so that you can program it um, and mm-hmm. then you need to have some kind of knowledge or teach yourself python which is a programming language, so that you can essentially get everything to talk to one another. Because the Raspberry Pi program is all about understanding and teaching, everything is kind of open source. There's lots of documentation. There's lots of tutorials. So I essentially spent a lot of time just reading tutorials, some of which were aimed at like 10-year-olds. So I felt a little bit (laughs) silly. But the way it's explained is so simple Mm. and very welcoming and very inclusive 
so it's actually a really great way of actually getting a bit of a grounding in something that you're unfamiliar i've tried to learn programming languages in the past and mm. it can be really obtuse because although in some respects the kind of coding community can be really welcoming in other respects it can be a little bit snobbish mm. and expect you to understand things and if you don't understand it you're not reading the documentation properly mm-hmm. whereas the raspberry pi is obviously aimed at a much lower entry level it's a bit more welcoming of that you know you're coming from zero knowledge and how far did you get with your web server did you get it functioning uh yes and no <laughs> so i managed to get it to a point where i got everything talking to one another mm-hmm. um so i could i could see how how much battery it had i could see how long the the, the server had been up and running for mm-hmm. um I'd, I'd got it connected to the solar panel and it was charging but i got a bit stuck on the next step which was to then try and work out how to actually use that information in a more meaningful way than just stating it on the website mm. so in the with the low tech magazine example they have a, a very simple sort of battery level i mentioned the background changes depending on the status yeah. of the battery but i was perhaps being a little bit more ambitious and wanted to try and do slightly more complex I'll take a slightly more complicated approach. So mm-hmm. if there are five people on the website and the battery's at 50%, then they each get allocated 10% of the battery life. Okay. And once you've, yeah. once you've used your 10%, the session shuts down um, or the, the visibility of the site starts um, reflecting the amount of sunlight or the charge on the battery. So if it's, if it's fully charged, everything's really visible or if it, you know, once it starts getting to low battery, it becomes very subtle shades of grey so that you can't really discern anything. And I kind of got a bit stuck because I think my ambition outweighed my um, <laughs> my skill there. So it sort of stalled. And then we we moved house. So it all got boxed up. And then it's just <laughs> been sitting in a, in a box in pieces. Um, yeah, looking rather sad. And how do you feel about the fact that it is in a box in pieces? Do you think it was still a valuable experience to have have done as a project? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a it's a really fun thing to have done. I think I surprised myself a little bit because I I'm not what I'd call a natural programmer. I mm. my approach is very trial and error. I used to build websites when I was at school by going onto a website that I found interesting and looking at the code and then copy and pasting bits and trying to work out what different things did, which is like the worst way of coding because <laughs> you're not really learning it. You're just sort of aping, I suppose. Yeah. But the fact that I managed to get as far as I did, I f- was quite encouraging and it did actually make me want to sit down and think, okay, maybe I should actually take one of these courses. So I, I start, I've started or restarted doing the, the Code Academy uh, Python programming course so that I can get a better understanding of it and hopefully actually get to the point where I can resuscitate it and get it actually working. I think also, if anything, it was it's good just to experiment and play around with something, just to test an idea out. And you said that the, you mentioned to me that the idea came about for the server around the time that you'd been looking into redesigning a client's packaging in yes. a more ecological way. And those two things, I think, are only related to each other through the topic of sustainability, which we've already touched on and we'll come to probably again later on. But could I just ask you first, if you often 
find yourself working on one thing and then going down a research rabbit hole into something else yeah i i can't decide whether it's a really good thing or a really bad thing <laughs> but yeah I'll, I'll often be researching one thing and i'll come across something in the middle of my research that's really interesting and might mm. start me thinking about something else you know case in point the solar power server came out of or around the same time that i was looking into uh, the packaging project that you mentioned but that was more to do with the fact that i think i was looking into the wider systems and things like supply chains and having some really interesting conversation with printers and production houses about the idea that sustainability sustainability is often taken in terms of whether or not something can be recycled or not mm. but actually there's a much bigger conversation around what sustainable means so for example taking paper like paper's good because it's recyclable brilliant so if you find a paper that's made using wind power, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But then if that paper is made in the US and then has to be shipped to the UK, that's not so good. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when you start digging into things a bit further and start looking at the supply chains, there's actually you know, much bigger considerations um, that you have, mm -hmm. to, you have to make. So, you know, we were looking at not only can the thing be recycled, but where is it made? Where are we getting the paper from? Where are we shipping it to? If we're getting stuff manufactured in the Far East, then we should be working with paper mills in the Far East. We shouldn't be shipping paper from Europe to the Far East because that's ridiculous. I think in, in one instance, we had one thing being made in Asia, one thing being made in the UK, one thing being made in Europe, and then they were all being assembled in the UK. Yeah. So you had like four different supply chains coming together. And when you start thinking about things like that, that's not really sustainable in terms of yeah. like an approach and is sustainability a particular interest of yours or in fact something that you get to apply across different areas of your work i think it's it's probably something that i've been fairly interested in for a while i have vague memories of a college project that we we had to write a manifesto and then design it and produce a publication that epitomize those values and I think I made a very earnest plea for the use of recycled papers and using soy-based inks and I remember getting a few laughs at the time but that's now the norm it is mm -hmm. it is a consideration that you know most designers I think now make and I think it's becoming something that clients are more willing to listen to people about mm -hmm. I work with some really great printers called Generation Press uh, down near Brighton. Some of the most enlightening conversations um, have come from talking to them about material choices. Um, you know, mm. they've been working for years to make their business as low impact as possible. They have solar power, solar panels on their factory roof that supplies, I think, 50% of the energy for most of the year. They have a, they've been doing tree planting for the last 10, 15 years or so. They uh, they work with local sheep farmers. They, they do all these amazing social and environmental initiatives, which at the time, you know, like 15, 20 years ago, was a bit of a, an outlier. But because they've been doing it for so long, they've really refined their, their process and they're, they're experts in that field now. And you're also interested in ideas of ownership as they relate to the digital world. And we've already touched on this a little bit when you were talking about the teaching yourself <laughs> um, how to make your web server when yeah. you were talking about the Raspberry Pi. 
So could you tell me a little bit more about what those ideas of ownership are as they relate to the digital world? Um, and you've also, you sent me an article that talks about something called the hacker ethic, which I thought sounded quite interesting as well. Yeah. So I guess the, the digital ownership, the ideas about digital ownership, that came up with, in conversation with uh, one of your previous guests, Rishi Dastadar. Mm-hmm where we were, we were working on the, the self-portrait postcards project together. And um, th- this was quite early on in the, in the days of Facebook where you couldn't yet download anything. So everything was still mm. locked away in, in Facebook's ecosystem. There's no way of getting anything back unless you physically printed something. But you could subscribe to people's RSS feeds of their updates because they hadn't introduced those privacy rules. Like everything was essentially public. So the project started, we started to play around with how we can, how we could extract some of that data. So we essentially hacked the RSS feed and used it in a way that it probably wasn't intended and probably broke loads of terms and conditions. (laughs) Um, But we essentially pulled the data from the feed, dumped it into a database, which we then used to create the postcards. So it was, you know, this weird idea that, it's your content that you've created, uploaded, but you have no way of asserting your ownership of it. Mm. Like you can't take it back. So it was kind of a way of trying to challenge that idea of, you know, how can we take control of your data? They then obviously shut the RSS feeds down because of privacy concerns. Because I think even if your profile was private, you could still access people's feeds, which is obviously a bit of a a concern so they shut yeah. that down so it becomes a bit more complicated it becomes less accessible and i guess the the hacker ethic is is kind of really interesting because it so it sort of talks about the idea that information should be freely accessible and it shouldn't be locked away and the idea that you know technology and therefore power shouldn't be concentrated in a few hands which is kind of what it is you know like microsoft apple google facebook they have proprietary code algorithms everything's really closely guarded everything's kind of locked away and it's kind of concentrated in a few very powerful companies and they can decide whether things exist or whether things don't exist and there's you know there's not a lot you can do and that kind of runs counter to this idea of the sort of open source movement which mm. came out of as a result i suppose of this this hacker ethic which is as, as far as i understand it is something that sort of came out of mit the massachusetts institute of technology in the 50s and mm. 60s um, the story goes that they had this amazing ibm computer but it was constantly kept under lock and key and the students were only available only allowed to use it every now and then and the students objected to the idea that this resource was essentially being wasted because it was locked away and no one could use it. So they used to sneak into the building after hours and <laughs> and use it um, when they weren't supposed to. And I suppose the idea of hack in the sense of using technology in a way to sort of understand things better or to make things better rather than using it in a sort of, I guess, the Hollywood stereotype of you know, trying to break through encryption to to download yeah. confidential information. I, I guess the analogy would be more like an IKEA wardrobe hack, where you <laughs> you know put some nice bits of wood on a, a wardrobe and make it not look like an IKEA wardrobe. Yeah, it's that it's that kind of um, mentality rather than 
trying to download classified information from a secure mm-hmm. website. And how could issues of digital ownership affect people on a day-to-day basis, other than making your wardrobes look great, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess in its most basic sense, we most most apps and websites that we use, I guess, on a daily basis are kind of dependent on the goodwill of other people, whether that's individuals mm. or companies. Um, there's an amazing site called killedbygoogle.com that lists every single project that Google has killed over the last like 10 oh, years wow. or so. And I think there's about okay. 260 odd different projects that they've shuttered, um, including Google Reader, which I think was one of my favorite tools to use to aggregate um, websites and news feeds. And they just stopped supporting it and they killed it. You know, things like was it Periscope that got bought up by Twitter and then just got killed. Instagram buying up different apps just to essentially kill them off because they're a threat to the competition. The idea that you're entirely dependent on, so I have a Gmail account, as do probably millions of other people. Mm. But if Google suddenly decides that they're not going to do email anymore, sure, there's not a lot you can do. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, you know, what happens to all your data? Yes, you could probably download it, but yeah, you, you, you lose your email address that you probably had for 10, 15 years, maybe. Mm. You know, most people have had them for quite a long time now. So I don't think we necessarily always appreciate how interdependent everything is. In a way, the internet is sort of, and websites are sort of held together with a bit of sticky tape in a way. They're all, <laughs> it's like a collection of different things that are all interdependent and you, you remove one thing and then things start to collapse yeah. and there's nothing you can do i think the article i sent you talked about the the code repository that got removed and it broke it mm. broke half the internet and it it's just 11 pieces of tiny code that no one even yeah. no, no one even knew existed or yeah. even realized that their their project was um entirely dependent on and you, you take that out of the equation and you know, millions of sites suddenly collapse I'll put a link to that article in the show notes because it was really interesting. It was yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, as you say, it was it was a very small piece of code that was seemingly not super important, but then the the person who wrote it removed it, and it broke a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really fascinating, and I think I think the most interesting bit about that is where the ideals of the sort of open source movement, the idea that people will host packages of code and freely distribute it out of their own goodwill becomes threatened by things like IP rights where Mm. corporations and companies start to clamp down on what they see as their intellectual rights you know in in that case of the article it's just the unfortunate coincidence that this poor guy decided to name his code or use the same name as an app in Canada that he probably wasn't even aware of um, and the uh, the company decided that they they didn't like it and demanded that he take it down, and then it led to you know like half the internet breaking. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to move on now to talking about not finishing things more broadly in relation to your your wider work. And I mentioned in the introduction that you primarily work in branding and editorial design, and I wondered if that work lends itself to things not being finished if that's not an odd way to put it or or does the fact that you create things for clients mean that projects do generally get pushed along and completed i think actually in a way it 
encourages things to not be finished just because you're right in the sense that um, you're working for a client. So there is a generally an agreed upon goal or brief that you're working towards. But whenever I'm exploring that, uh, there'll usually be various different avenues that will start to emerge through the research mm. or through the the content that's been supplied by the client. And sometimes the directions won't be appropriate um, or mm. they won't work or you know, in discussions with the client, they're not keen on them for one reason or another. And, you know, ultimately it's not a piece of artwork. It is a, a piece of commercial work that you're producing for mm. someone else. So you, you sort of have to be quite not sensitive to that, but that has to play a major consideration in what you're mm. doing. So you can't really be too precious about ideas um, and maybe have like 10, 15 ideas that I might sketch out when I'm in the beginning of a project and maybe three or four of them might get shown to the client and then out of those three or four one will maybe end up as the final thing but it will never be you know the essence of the idea might be there but it will morph and change as as the conversations with the client goes or sometimes it'll just get killed completely because the project gets cancelled or it gets paused or the parameters change and then it just you know it, it just doesn't happen and it's just an unfortunate part of the the process i think of doing commercial work as opposed to artistic work it it does sometimes just get cancelled sure and i'm interested in the distinction that you drew there between commercial work and artistic work and you said that the work that you do for a client isn't artwork but could it be could you ever do you think class it as being art oh big question <laughs> big question big question and I'm sure many design student dissertations have been written on the subject um, I'm pretty sure this is a conversation me and my um, classmates had numerous times probably around around a pub table I think design projects can be artistic and I think they can be could be seen as pieces of art but I think I suppose the distinction is that a piece of design work essentially serves a concrete purpose, which is to Mm. educate, to communicate, to sell, to, Mm. you know, package, protect, whereas a piece of artwork just sort of exists for its own sake and of its own being. Mm. It doesn't need to have a, a reason necessarily for it to exist. Whereas I think a piece of design work, that there has to be a reason for it to exist. If there, if there isn't really a, you know, a, a concrete reason mm. for it to exist, then I, I don't think it can be a piece of des, uh, piece of design work, and it starts to veer into, you know, a piece of art. And do you have your own separate projects outside of the work that you do for the clients? Yeah, from time to time. So I, I collaborate with Rishi quite a lot. We've been working together on and off for the last like 10 or 11 years. Recently started working on a project with uh, photographer Daniel Gurton. Um, he's taken these amazing, really beautiful, quite haunting photographs of the Diana Memorial in Hyde Park um, in such a way that they're actually unrecognisable. You don't really realise what they are until you start examining them. So yeah. we're working... The three of us are working together on a, on a piece of work around that. So mm-hmm. um, sort of examining the idea of 
memory and the idea of commemoration and public architecture. Um, you know, the fact that this amazing piece of public architecture that commemorates a very public figure, but most people go to the memorial to splash their feet in it when it's hot. Mm. <laughs> I, I wonder how many people actually realise what it is and what it's for. So yeah, there's uh, don't often get to collaborate on projects outside of my kind of commercial work just because it's, it's often quite time consuming but every now and then when I have the opportunity it's uh, it's always a you know an amazing um, thing to be able to do yeah and it sounds based on what you've just said and what you've told me about your work already that you do quite a range of different types of projects um branding work designing work web servers the Diana Memorial work. <laughs> um, are you are you a bit of a polymath, and and have you always been like that? If if so, that's a really good question, and I kind of reluctant to use the term polymath because I I think yeah. it infers expertise in a number of different areas, and I'm definitely not that. I think <laughs> I think I'm just innately curious about things, and I just. I always want to learn and understand things. Um, so if I come across something that piques my interest, I want to learn a bit more about it, I want to read a bit more about it to get a better understanding of it. But often it won't go much further than that. You know, I'll sort of satisfy my curiosity and you know, it might sit at the back of my mind for a while or I might jot it down in a notebook and then come back to it in, you know, six months' time. But I think it I think it ties back to the the hacker ethic of understand wanting to understand how things work not being satisfied with you know the fact that things just exist and operate by themselves you know like how does that work why does that work can we do something better and i just have one other question actually which is do you have any idea why Raspberry Pi computers are called Raspberry Pi computers because it's a great name. <laughs> I kind of want to know where it came from. I don't. Um, I'm really <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it's probably something really silly to try and make it friendly to kids or there'll be some kind of really clever technological answer behind it. I really want to know now. The suspense is terrible, isn't it? Let me just do that. Uh, I have an answer. Okay. Is it going to be really silly? No, it's not silly, but it's, it, we could have guessed. We could have guessed. So the name Raspberry Pi is derived from the fruit pie, Raspberry Pi. Okay. This is because many companies in the computer neighborhood where Raspberry Pi was based use fruit names such as apple and apricot as names for their companies oh, and products. Of course. That's really, it's so really obvious, go. isn't it, when you think about it? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't profess to be an expert in everything that I... <laughs> <laughs> everything I say so you'll probably get some uh, angry letters saying that's not quite accurate <laughs> I mean I long for an angry letter at least it shows people are properly listening you know <laughs> that's true actually maybe maybe that's the validation that you've uh, your podcast has arrived you start getting angry correction letters <laughs> <laughs>